Good morning. How are we all doing today? Pretty good? Well, we are in our uh, final message of our Isaiah series today, God Reigns. We've taken the last three Sundays and then also Good Friday uh, to study and exalt some of the foundational truths of God's character. This morning, I'm hoping to add two more, two more to that, all right? So uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 30, and you can begin to turn there. I'm going to just read verses 1 and 2 as you're turning there. It says this, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. So the first 14 verses of Isaiah 30 is really uh, a lot of the similar of what I just read. The Lord is rebuking the Israelites for looking to Egypt for help and speaking the likely consequences of their actions. So here is the context of what's going on. The Assyrians had already taken the northern kingdom, Israel, and were advancing to the southern kingdom, Judah. The southern kingdom was not very confident in their military might at this time. And they were certainly not confident in their ability to ward off the powerful Assyrians. And so they scheme and begin to devise a plan to align with the powerful Egyptians, essentially turning their backs once again on God and his promises. This action, as God contends, is not only foolish, but will lead them not to their desired outcome of protection and safety. And in fact, it will only bring further destruction and dismay. We read in 15 through 17 of chapter 30, this is what it says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of the mountain, like a signal on top of a hill. In the midst of their worry, in the midst of their concern, in the midst of their fear, Israel turns away from God and places their trust and their strength or places their trust in the strength of another nation. They rely on the power of another nation's gods, the power of another nation's military might. And God reminds them that he has desired them to be his people that he has given them some promises, that he has given them some assurances. And he says that returning to his ways will provide the safety that they seek, that requesting or that resting in him is the true place of salvation that they desire, that quietness of spirit will drown out the fear and the distraction around, that trust in God and his promises will be their only lasting strength. 
And although these words are spoken to Israel in a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain context, they are also words of truth for us today, in our time and in our place. They are promises that we can look to when we are worried, when we are concerned, when we are fearful. But in that time, in that place, in that context, hearing these promises, Israel still chooses another way. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever chose the other way in your life? We are coming up uh, upon Bloomsday. Bloomsday is next weekend. For many, many years, I ran Bloomsday. Uh, And in fact, there is one that stands out as the most significant Bloomsday of my life. It was Bloomsday of 1991. How many people ran Bloomsday in 1991? How many people were born in 1991? Let's start there. Okay, about 15 of us. Uh, Could anybody tell me the color of the shirt in 1991? Purple. Yeah, nice job, Hans. Way to go. (laughs) Very impressive, my friend. So this was, uh, I believe this was my second or third time doing Bloomsday. I was uh, almost 10, so I'm nine years old, coming up on my 10th birthday, and uh, I ran Bloomsday with my mom, my dad, my grandfather, and my uh, grandmother. And in the races previous to this year, we were a family that walked. So I don't know what color uh, that is, but one of the colors that starts you know, like an hour after the first people start, and then it takes you two and a half hours, and you walk, and we had a great time, and that was kind of our routine. But as a uh, almost 10-year-old, I had felt like it was time to experience the running aspect of Bloomsday. And so my uh, family and I had come up with a plan that I would begin the race kind of walking with them, and then when I felt comfortable and when I was ready, I would go ahead and run to finish the race. My grandfather and and grandmother were not, uh, I think they were probably in their 80s at this point. They were not quite in a place to run. uh, But, I mean, for being that old, walking Bloomsday is uh, uh, is a monumental feat for sure. But they, um, so I was going to go out. I was going to kind of strike out on my own and run. And we had devised a plan that uh, whenever I felt comfortable, I'd go ahead. And then we would have a family meeting place so that I would get through and then I would wait there for the rest of my family to show up. We decided the clock tower alongside the 10,000 other people that use the clock tower as the meeting place. Uh, we thought that that was probably our best bet. So I would run, I would go, I'd finish, then I would wait at the clock tower, and mom and dad and grandpa and grandma would come and find me. Bloomsday does not finish, or it used to finish in a different place than it finishes now. So you used to actually kind of finish in Riverfront Park. That was where the t-shirt shoots were. And I got my t-shirt, went through the shoots. I finished strong, by the way. I, I finished really strong. I want everybody to know that. Got through the, uh, you know, ripped off the thing, got my time, got my t-shirt, went through the shoots, and decided at that moment that I could just wait at the t-shirt shoots and catch mom and dad and grandpa and grandma when they got their t-shirt and came through. It would be easy to spot them, right? What I did not realize is that what most people do when they finish Bloomsday is they immediately put on their new Bloomsday t-shirt. And so I'm now at the Bloomsday t-shirt shoots as a nine-year-old, as thousands of people are coming through, putting on purple shirts, and everybody looks exactly the same, and I cannot spot my mom, my dad, my grandfather, or my grandmother. Minutes go by, 
then a few more minutes, then 15 minutes. And at this point, I'm starting to get very, very concerned. What if I am forever trapped at the end of the Bloomsday t-shirt shoots? And even amidst the tens of thousands of people that are around me, I'm not sure that I had ever felt so alone in a moment. I had essentially turned my back on our plan, our promise to meet at a specific location, and decided that I knew what was right in that moment. And because, I found myself utterly lost. Similar to how I thought I might be able to do it on my own, Israel chooses their own well-being, their own plans over the way of God. And yet, even though they turn their backs, in verse 18, Isaiah prophetically assures to the Israelites that the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. No matter what they have done, God's grace and mercy and love never changes for Israel. I'm going to quote a Twitter handle, not a handle, I'm sorry, I don't know much about Twitter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a tweet is maybe the better way to say it. I've never done this before, I've always wanted to do it, and this is the perfect time. Uh, this is actually from Pope Francis. I don't know if you know this, but the Pope has uh, a Twitter feed. This is uh, what he sent out May of 2013. The whole of salvation history is the story of God looking for us. He offers us love and welcomes us with tenderness. The first truth I want to tell you that we learn in this is that God is a God that welcomes all. God is a God that welcomes all. Now, I know I left you with quite a cliffhanger at the Bloomsday t-shirt shoots. Was he ever found is probably the question that you've been wrestling with. I want to show you this picture to prove that I was in fact found and also to prove that the early 90s was an incredible time to be alive. <laughs> there is so much I'd like to say about that picture, but just for time, I'm just going to let that just drink it in, people, right there. After what seemed like hours at the t-shirt shoots and with tear-filled eyes, I finally spotted my grandfather, primarily because of the hat he was wearing. And then I saw my mom. And what do you think that next moment was like? Was I punished in that moment for not sticking to the plan? Did she turn away from me because I didn't meet her at the clock tower? No. She opened her arms and she caught me as I ran to her. My mom welcomed me and has always welcomed me no matter what I have ever done. Russ spoke on Easter from Isaiah 55 about how God abundantly pardons us. And what's so amazing about this is not only does God abundantly pardon us by absorbing the sin of the world, but he welcomes us back time and time again. He welcomes us always. You see, he doesn't pardon from a distance. He doesn't forgive at a distance. 
Just like my mom, his arms are always open. He welcomes us always. No guilt, no shame, no strings attached, no I told you so's. Just love and welcome. Verses 19 and 20 says that God will wait for his people to come back, saying in Zion that he will be a God of comfort and a God of provision, and that in their affliction and adversity, he will be a God that is present. You see, we serve and love a God that welcomes all, including us when we have turned our backs. No matter how we have acted or what we have said, his grace and mercy and love knows no limit. These first 20 verses paint a picture of a God that waits to welcome the rebellious Israelites. But then the following few verses, Isaiah shifts to speak about some of the realities of the life that Israel is promised when they do, in fact, turn back toward God. Isaiah 21 says this, And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn the left. This verse is where I want to spend the rest of the morning because I think it's a a pretty profound verse when you're thinking about the promise of divine guidance. So God waits and welcomes our return always, and then he assures us that as we walk in his ways, we will hear his voice from behind us, directing us. Now, I'll pause here and I'll say, certainly there are times when you are called to something. Undoubtedly, God has instructed you to do a specific thing or maybe not to do a specific thing. Some of us have moments we can point back to in our histories to say, that was the voice of God. I was called to this. I knew I needed to go. When that happens, and if that happens in your life, go. Go. Whatever it is God calls you to do, go. We don't always get that audible voice of God, right? God assures guidance, but then why does it sometimes feel like clear answers aren't present? That clear answers are hard to come by, that sometimes we're just drifting about in a sea of options with no clear path forward. That even when we are pursuing him, we can feel helpless. We can feel lost at times. I think we feel this way because we have maybe misappropriated what God's divine guidance actually means. You see, I think we often want a tour guide. Somebody who tells us where to look and when. Yet verse 21 seems to indicate that as long as we stay close enough and we are willing to listen, we are the ones that choose the direction. Remember, it says this, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Have you imagined God's will for your life in these ways? 
The narrative that we too often create is that his will is like a corn maze. There's really only one true, right, and direct path. And that every time we are confronted with a directional choice, there is just one singular, correct decision. And the wrong decision would certainly send us to a dead end. And so in this narrative, we need his guidance to be signs and wonders and clear direction to help us uncover this mysterious path that he's laid out for us. And then when we don't find it, we feel lost. We feel helpless. But if this is how we believe it, then we've co-opted divine guidance to mean that we must choose the exact right thing, otherwise we fall outside of his will. I personally do not believe God is vindictive like this. I don't think he's a control freak that's created some sort of secret path that we have to uncover along the way. I don't believe he's a God that keeps silent just to watch us flail around looking for that path. What if we are free beings and that God's guidance really is the consistent equipping of us so that we can choose appropriately? as we move forward. Greg Boyd says this, it takes a greater God to steer a world populated with free agents than it does to steer a world of pre-programmed automons. You see, God's sovereignty, his providence is way beyond anything we can ever comprehend. I understand that there is comfort that can come from the truth that God has a plan for my life, which is a phrase that we hear often. But maybe there is greater comfort to be found in the idea that God knows all of the potential plans for my life and that he trusts me, his created, loved son, his created, loved daughter, to choose the right path along the way. If God's mercy and grace are seen as he waits and welcomes our return, then I believe God's love of us is on full display in the fact that he's created us with the ability to choose and equips us as such as we move forward. So rather than imagining a singular and specific path that aligns with God's will, think of God's providence as encompassing all of life. Everything known and unknown, every single thing that is possible, and our journey is to walk in his way or like he did through everything that life throws at us, that his will for our lives is more about how we walk than where we walk. Joyce Rupp says this, Guidance is about hearing the inner voice in us that keeps us closely connected with God's ways, giving us direction for our lives. It's not that our lives are all mapped out for us by God. The path is rarely a clear, visible, neatly defined one. No, rather divine wisdom helps us to discover each step of the way, how we are to be a loving person in the world with our chipped, flawed condition. God has always been more concerned about our willingness to walk closely with him than our ability to choose the correct direction. When we are close enough to hear and our ears are open to his voice, then is it possible that both directions might be okay, whether we choose the right or whether we choose the left? 
because God's greatest desire is that we're walking with him. Truth number two, God is a God that desires relationship over directionality. God is a God that desires relationship over directionality. C.S. Lewis says, people often think of Christians, Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I will reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that this is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into the one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and er eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. To be a heavenly creature is to be in harmony with him, and to be in harmony with him is to give everything you have as you walk the path. So let me say this with as much sensitivity as I can muster. And if you know me, you know I'm not the most sensitive human being. But your directional choices are not as significant as the way that you are in relationship with him. God is not overly worried with whether you stay in your current job or take a different one. He is not nearly as anxious with your declaration of your major as you might be. He is not troubled with your choice of where you will live next. And he is not distraught by your decision to ask him or her out on another date. What he is concerned about, what he has always been concerned about, is your willingness to give your life to him to avail all that you have to him, to walk as he did as you chart your own path. God's plan for your life is not an elaborately detailed plan of specific movements and decisions that God has laid out and now demands that you must follow exactly or else you're outside of his will. If and when we believe God to be this way, about our decisions, about the jobs we take, about where to live, then we become easily paralyzed by these decisions. We agonize about what is right, about what would he have me do. Well, what he would have you do is to love him with every fiber of your being and make decisions that will allow you to bring honor and glory to him. God's will is far greater greater than a set of calculated movements. God's will is that you love him and people with everything. In whatever you do, in word or in deed, you do it as if doing it for the Lord. 
Ruben Job says this, my first concern is not my desired result. My first concern is always God and the fidelity of our relationship. And in the result of my discernment efforts will come quite naturally. I fully believe that when we seek unequivocally is the fidelity in our relationship with Christ, then our decisions about the directions we travel will always lead us closer to him. God's assurance of guidance isn't that we should wait until he instructs our every single step. It's the process of walking so closely with him that our hearts align with his and our decisions become the natural outflow. Let me close with this. Isaiah 31 through 21 is a powerful section that I think offers us two things, and I'll remind you of these two things. First, it gives us a picture of a God that eagerly awaits our return. No matter what has been said or what has been done, God welcomes us. We see this affirmed throughout Scripture, the prodigal son being the parable we all love and know. Jesus on the beach with his disciples after the resurrection. There are any number of accounts we can point to that show us that God is a God that awaits and welcomes our return. His grace and mercy extend to all. Just as Israel turned their backs, so have we at times, and yet God waits and welcomes our return. Secondly, it paints this picture of God whispering to us as we walk. Take comfort in the fact that the way he is whispering about is not just about directions. It's about conduct. It's not just about a destination as much as it is about how we travel the journey. It's not about where to move, but how we are moving along the way. Now, this is not to say we don't pray about our decisions. Of course you should. This doesn't mean that you don't welcome communal discernment around decisions. Of course you do. There is wisdom in these practices. But when the Israelites had taken matters into their own hands, they allowed their fear and concern to influence their decisions. And because of this, there were natural consequences. Some of our choices will be wrong along the way. My choice that Bloomsday in 1991 was the wrong choice. Sometimes we take matters into our own hands. We seek what's best for us. We don't take into account what's best for our relationship with Christ. And when we do all this, then our backs are turned. And these intentional decisions to choose ourselves before and above God, that's when we begin to operate outside of his will. But if you are committed to stay close with him along the journey. If you keep your ears open to hear his voice, then be confident that he trusts you, that he is equipping you along the way to move intentionally through all of life's choices and decisions to know that you will move in a way that is going to honor him and bring him glory because God has first called us into relationship with him. And that is his will for your life. Amen. Let's stand.
The words of the benediction this morning come from Isaiah 48. They say this, You, the Lord, my Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, have said, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who leads you in the way you should go. Go in peace today.